Welcome in, everybody, to Face-to-Face Sports here on WEHC 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Jordan Dove. For those who may not know, this show discusses all the latest local and national sports topics, while also providing an outlet for those in athletics to talk a little bit about themselves. Today, I'm extremely happy to welcome in Greg Sperling. Greg is currently working for Emory & Henry as an athletic trainer and adjunct professor. From 1982 to 1984, he played college basketball at Furman University before playing the remainder of his eligibility at Carson Newman from 1984 to 1986. Later in June of 86, Greg was drafted in the fifth round of the NBA draft by the Phoenix Suns. And so without further ado, welcome into Face-to-Face Sports, Mr. Sperling. How you doing, sir? How you doing today? I'm doing well, doing well, obviously. Uh, I've been wanting to do this interview for a long time. Used to you and I used to talk on and off at the uh, Coombs Center over there in Abingdon when I was working there. So uh, really, really excited about this interview and uh, being able uh, let, allowing you to little uh, talk about what you're doing at Emory, a little bit of your background as well. Um, so let's take right. it back a little bit uh, for those who may not know. Um, when you were younger, what what sports were interested? Uh, were you interested in from a young age, and how did uh, basketball become the main focus for you? know since I was five years old I was always interested in basketball uh, football kind of caught my eye for a little while but then I tried my hand at baseball and it just never really uh, got my attention like basketball did you know never one day did I never figure that it would turn out the way it did and I'm, I'm thankful for that but you know ever since I was five I was always dribbling to basketball always wanted to do something athletic and so basketball became the main focus. What about your, um, obviously, you know, your, how tall are you, 6'10", 6'11", somewhere in there? I'm seven, I'm seven foot. Okay, so you're seven foot. So I'm sure that that played a huge part in you deciding basketball as well. You you probably had a huge advantage over a lot of the other guys you were playing against. Well, you know, at, at a young age, I was I was pretty much, you know, the, the typical height. Um, and then it, I guess when I was a... In eighth grade, I was six one, and then by the ninth grade, I went to six nine. So I I grew roughly eight inches in one year, which was a that was a tough year. Right, right. So um, you played high school ball, and in 1982, you graduate high school and attend Furman University down there in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, what offer? What other ho- offers in high school were you looking at? Well, I went to. BC All-Star Camp, which is pretty much a who's who of the United States and, and basketball players, and all the marquee coaches come to that camp to to look at, to look at you know high school prospects and to figure out who they want to recruit. And I got recruited everywhere from Notre Dame, North Carolina, to Washington State, uh, Cal State, University of California, USC. So I was pretty heavily recruited by over 300 D1 schools. And so how how in the end did you uh, decide on Furman? I had a coach that come as my junior year when I was in high school. He had come recruiting me. And he saw at least half of my games Now how he was coaching Furman basketball and coming to my games twice a week. I don't, I don't know how he did it, but he was in the stands for half of the games of my junior year. 
And then my senior year, he was at every game, no matter where I played at, which was, I thought, was an indication of, hey, I want you to come play for me because they wouldn't spend that much time and energy to, to not have you come if they did. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of that was kind of a reason why I decided on Farm University because they so heavily recruited me so hard. I just, at the time, I couldn't see myself going to Washington State all the way over at the West Coast to play ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wanted to stay closer to home, and I, I wanted to go D1. And, you know, my mother and father and my brother, they could all come see us play. And so it was kind of a – I thought at the time it would work out really well. But, you know, going to North Carolina, I don't think I would have got much playing time because they had too many All-Americans at the time. Right, right. Um, so let's talk about that first year. You play the first two years at Furman under head coach Gene Davis, and you started in 12 games your first year. You share that center role with uh, George Singleton, who would later play overseas in Spain. Um, why the decision to transfer schools and attend Carson Newman? Well, I only played one year at uh, Furman. And the reason why is Eddie Holbrook, he recruited me. And when I signed, well, he decided he wasn't coming back. So that pretty much released me to go anywhere I wanted to go. But after a long conversation with Coach Holbrook, they were bringing in, he told me they were bringing in Gene Davis, who had coached under Bobby Knight for like four years. And I asked Coach Holbrook what he wanted me to do. And he said, well, I think you ought to stick it out and see how it does. I mean, you know, it's going to be a coach coming from Indiana University. And so I said, you know, I'm going to do it for you because of the interest that you that you showed in me for the last two years. And needless to say, it was a rough year. Um, and you mentioned George Singleton. I mean, George Singleton was a consensus All-American coming up that year where he was scoring 25 points a game. And that year I played with him as a freshman. He went down to 12 points a game. And needless to say, it was a tough year for everybody involved on that team because I'll just say this, there's only one Gene Davis. There's only one Bobby Knight in the world, and nobody else could beat him. <laughs> Let's right. just put it to you that way. <laughs> Bobby Knight was one of a kind for sure. Um, yeah, nobody nobody else could beat him. I mean, he yep. didn't get away with the stuff. But, of course, it eventually caught up to him, and, you know, just can't run a program like that for very long so people get impatient with you. Right. And so I decided to leave after my freshman year because the coach at Carson Newman, he had been after me for a long time, ever since I was a sophomore in high school. And I had worked a basketball camp there. And for three weeks, he was on me. This was in the summer after my first freshman year was over at Furman. He was on me for three weeks wanting me to transfer. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, you know, I'd be closer to home. really don't want to go back to Furman. I really don't want to go back and play for Davis anymore. Because we, I, we just didn't get along. And so at the end of the three-week camp, I told Coach Jones and Carson Newman that I was going to transfer but I told him, I said, I had my I had requests of my own. He said, okay, what was that? And I said, well, my request is going to be that 
course, I'm coming here. I want full scholarship. He said, sure. You know you know you got that. I said, my brother wants to transfer from Tennessee Tech. And I said, I want him here. He said, good. He got full scholarship. My brother was at Rome State. He was playing basketball there. I got him there, and I said, just for kicks and giggles, uh, I want my sister-in-law enrolled in school here. And as soon as I said all that stuff, he picked up the phone and called the academic dean, and all four of us were in school. So it just happened that quick. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, made the, I made the switch to get away from the environment that I wasn't happy with at Furman, but I'm, I came to a better environment in Carson Newman because me and my three brothers got to play together. You know, it was 30 minutes up the road. You know, we got to spend time together. It don't matter where you go to college, just as long as you get to go and graduate and get a four-year degree, and that's what's important. Right, right. How would you say the um, the system at Carson Newman differed from the one at Furman? Well, for one, the coach would go to bat for you. I mean, he would he'd get after you, but at the same time, he would show you how to do things the right way because he was an All-American at Carson Newman. And he was the first basketball player ever, Carson Newman, to be drafted in the ABA. And I turned out being the first NBA player ever drafted to the NBA. So we have that in common. But he, you know, it was NAI basketball. It wasn't NCAA D1 basketball like that's where I had come from. But it was still competitive. The... You finish up, you graduate in 1986, and the 86 NBA draft in June, you hear your name called in the fifth round, taken by the Phoenix Suns. Explain that feeling of knowing uh, you had been selected and you were heading to the pros. Well, I think to answer that question, um, as my senior year comes to a close and Coach Jones had asked me to come into the office, <laughs> he said, I got something for you. So I'm thinking, you know, my four years of basketball is over. And he said, I got you a tryout. And I kind of questioned him. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, I got you a tryout up in New York. I said, with who? I didn't even know what it was. And he said, but it turned out to be Gerald Oliver, who used to coach at the University of Tennessee, who coached Bernard King and Ernie Grunfeld. He was assistant coach. He was putting together a team to play in the NBA Summer League. So, next thing I know, I'm on a plane going to New York. We're working out three times a day. We go for two weeks. I lose 10 pounds in two weeks. We had 200 guys in camp. They're only looking for 10 of us. And by the end of the two weeks, I was one of the 10 guys still standing. So I, I made the NBA Summer League team, and for about a month, I was playing with them, and I was playing in Westchester Golden State up in New York after a ball game, and a guy come up to me, and he handed me his business card. That's what we used to do back in those days for cell phones. People handed out business cards, and he said, I'll see you in two weeks. And I, knew, I didn't even look at his card. I just kind of stuck in my shorts, and I went in the locker room, sat down, kind of got off to myself. And I looked at it, and it said, Richard Perch, Danny, uh, NBA scout, Phoenix Sun. And I kind of reflected back on what he said. He said, 
I'll see you in two weeks. And I said, wait a minute, what's in two weeks? And I started calculating in my head. I said, oh, my goodness, the NBA draft comes out too. And I said, surely not. So fast forward two weeks, I'm in practice, and Coach Oliver, who is my coach, kind of calls us all into the, to the middle of the floor, and he said, well, let's all say goodbye to Mr. Sperling. He's gone. I thought he cut me right there in front of everybody. And he said, he, probably, he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and he said, sir, you've just been, you've just been drafted in the NBA. And I, to answer your question, I thought I was going to hit the floor. Uh, I was just like astounded. I mean, it's just like everything that I'd ever worked for all the time and energy and frustration and, you know, had come to pass. And I was like, man, this, I made it. Mm-hmm. I finally made it, you know, because back in those days, I mean, there was only 28 teams, and you're looking at you're looking at the possibility of getting a job is like one and a half, like one and a half open slots teams without guaranteed money. So really difficult to get a job because you had at least six thousand seniors coming out wanting to get a job playing in the NBA. So the odds are very, very slim. Mm-hmm. I read an article uh, which said when you flew out to Arizona for the first time, one of the first players you met was Larry Nance, who, as many people know, won the first ever slam dunk contest in 1984 when the NBA first started it. What were interactions like with players like him and other veterans like, say, like other centers like Alvin Adams or Walter Davis? Well... I came in as a you know a rookie. Now I'm, I've been knocked off my perch as a top-notch senior in college, and now I'm now I'm been reduced down to a rookie. So I mean, first time I ever Larry, met Larry, I went and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm here. I'm not going away. I thought I'm going to have to guard you." And he just he just kind of looked at me and said, "Welcome." He just said, "Welcome to the league, Brooke." So I was like, "You just got to get that stuff out of the way," you know. You know, stuff you see on TV, you just have to kind of put it out of your head and say, hey, if, if they didn't want me here, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to give them what they want. So, And I did. So that, that's how that worked. That's how I felt. You know, Alvin Adams was the NBA Rookie of the Year that year. And Walter Davis played in North Carolina. Was a, you know, all these guys are, are great top 10% athletes in the NBA. So, you know, you kind of you like kind of lean on a little bit and kind of learn as much as you can, try to fit in as quick as you can. But that, that's the big part of it is fitting in and being able to do the intangibles that they want you to do. You and I have talked about this before, but um, the competition level at the at, – at, or the competition at the NBA level, can you kind of explain the difference at the NBA level, especially like you and I have talked about at the the – physical side of things like how how much more physical is the nba as opposed to you know i guess the collegiate level well at that level you know you're playing against guys that are very physical and you have to be able to protect yourself and you have to be able to you know in in some words you have to pretty much dish dish it out yourself I mean, you, you can't stand there and just let them beat on you. 
you're going to have to stand your ground at a time or at another time. But you know, you just don't go around, you know, cheap shot people. But at the same time, you want to be able to stand your ground and do your job and do it well. And you know, the expectation level is so high. Um, you know, even in your contract, you have things delineated out. If you average so many minutes, so many points, so many rebounds, so many 50-50 balls, there's so many things in your contract that that are motivators because if you average these things, then your contract pay goes up. So, I mean, but, you know, it's kind of hard to do when you're playing against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you're playing against Charles Barkley, you're playing against Carl Malone. I mean, these guys got the same stuff you do. So, you know, they're, they're wanting their money. Competition level really goes up. <laughs> Excuse me, goes up. <laughs> right, and... I, I know you said before it, it's you know after you left the NBA it was kind of hard to just play pickup basketball wasn't it because the the competition level just isn't the same. No, no, but you know even in practice nobody's out to really hurt anybody because we we all know that everybody is you know we want longevity we don't want us to be hurt and nobody wants to be on the injured reserve. But yeah, it was tough for me to come back and try to play and kind of pick up, unless it was against, you know, my former college athletes and people who's played college ball. I mean, it's kind of hard to play against somebody who's a weekend warrior because they know you've been an athlete and you've played at that level and they kind of want to take you on and then you kind of change gears and it's like they don't like it when you, when you kind of switch into that mode a little bit it's mm-hmm. like well this this is the way it's going to be because i'm going to protect myself right right um so you spent some time in phoenix 1989 and 1990 you spent some time up in chicago with the bulls uh during phil jackson's right. first year with the team uh what, right. were, what were those practices like and how competitive was uh would or would michael jordan make them well i'll tell you how i got to chicago i was playing uh, I spent a little time at the CBA, and Charlie Rosen and Bill Jackson were friends. They were big buddies because they went to Woodstock together and smoked pot together. <laughs> you know, Char- Charlie's a big, you know, he was a big uh, sports writer. So Charlie had got him a job coaching basketball, and I, evidently he was coaching me. And I was played for Charlie, and he kind of picked up the phone and said, hey, you got to look at this guy. And I didn't know he did it. Next thing I know, I was in Chicago, Illinois. And up there with Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan and the, and the list. The list is, is extensive and, and distinguished. And I think that was probably – I spent a day before practice just in awe because I'm playing with the greatest player in the world. And it, it – I had to kind of wake myself up and say, "Man, you got to get back to work. You can't be a fan. You got to be a got to be a player." So that's kind of what it was like. Practices were three and a half hours long, and we kind of got after each other. And but it was all making each other better. But you know, it's not to say that some fights might have broke out, some skirmishes broke out. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Michael hit and few people like Paxson in the head with a ball because he didn't like the way he was giving him the ball. And, you know, it's just countless stuff. Um, there was a kid we had from St. John's 
him and Michael got into it. So they run a backdoor play with a high pick, and Scotty went up and uh, threw him an alley oop. He dunked it on his head, pushed him into the end of the wall, gave him a concussion. So you know stuff like that happens. So you're gonna lose your temper because you spend three six hours a day looking at the same people. You kind of get tired of each other after a while. Sure. So tempers are gonna flare. Right. Well, that's kind of the way practice was. But, you know, if practice started at 9 a.m., it, it started. You know, we didn't come in there and talk about it. It started. Whether you were stretched out or not, whether you were ready to go, you better be ready to go because Bill was going to start on time and end on time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plus, you know, $100 a minute for being late, that kind of adds up a little bit. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, you, you were never you were never late for practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at 100 a minute will add up. I don't want nobody taking no money. So. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants that. Um, no. When basketball was done for you, what then did you decide to pursue? My last round was playing in Australia, and of course I was always around therapists and trainers, and you know I was looking for something that I wanted to do after after basketball. And I got interested in sports medicine because of the environment that I was in for, you know, 25 years. I was always around trainers and therapists and the way they help people and the way they serve people and got people better and back on the floor. So that was kind of my springboard to go back to school after it was all over and, and get into sports medicine. Obviously, I mean, you you spent a lot of time doing sports medicine and things like that, but um, recently, in the last year, you got the position at Emory & Henry. How did that position come about for you? Um, well, I was the head trainer for 17 years at Virginia Intermont College, and I was on the faculty down there teaching. And I came by Emory one day, and I talked to Melissa about you know helping out because this was kind of post-COVID, so... We had lost a lot of trainers, and we sat down and talked a little bit, and she said if I'd be interested in coming up here and work because, you know, I, I enjoy working with student-athletes. I've been one myself. I can kind of uh, envelop myself into that and knowing what they're, what they're wanting and kind of the pains that they're going through and help guide these student-athletes a little bit. So, I, you know, talking with Melissa, that's how I ended up getting the job, working and helping out at the Emory Athletic Department. Right. Right, and um, I mean, obviously, you're a bitter, uh, busy man. You're you're doing a lot of things at Emory during the day. Um, you're also an adjunct adjunct professor, um, and then you're doing the orthopedic therapy in the evenings. What does a, a typical work week look like for you? I'm sure very very busy. Uh, in the morning, I work in the training room um, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday to like twelve, and after that, I get a maybe forty five minutes for lunch. And then I've got uh, patients that I see. I work at Cornerstone Therapy, too, in the afternoon. So I go see uh, orthopedic patients there, you know, total knees, total hips, um, BPV, people with balance issues, uh, people with global deconditioning. It's just a a wide range of that. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I teach in the mornings. I teach a couple of classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then, of course, my day in the afternoon on Tuesdays and Thursdays is going back to the orthopedic clinic until like 6 o'clock in the evening. Right, right. I I, I think we we talked about this as well um, 
during my time at Coombs Center, but we talked a little bit about um, the differences in, in kind of going back to basketball, but uh, the differences in today's game versus the game of the past. In your opinion, um, how much has the, the game changed uh, since the 1980s? And what is it for the better? Obviously, the game is stretched out more. There's more three-point shooting. What's your opinion on today's game? Today's game versus when I played, it's a lot more physical when I played. A lot more physical. Um, of course, anything and everything went through the four or five man before it came back out and the one or two guard got to shoot it. Uh, nowadays, it's across the half-court line and the ball goes up. <clears throat> so I don't think centers really have an opportunity. You know, If you play the five position, I don't think they really have an opportunity to thrive unless they can really get out and run the floor. They have to, and they really got to be able to shoot the ball because, you know, anything six, eight feet behind the three point line, they call that a shot nowadays. And I just think as a big man, I'd be so frustrated because, you know, all the thing you would be doing is getting a defensive rebound and letting it out and wouldn't even get a chance to cross half court and the ball's going up. I mean, I've seen it time and time again that there's nobody underneath the bucket and these one, two, and three guards are shooting the ball with nobody under. That's just, that's how much it's changed. Because um, I can remember when I was playing that if that four or five man didn't touch that ball every time down the court, you got taken out of the game. Nowadays, they don't even consider it a four and five man. So that's how much it's changed that I've seen. <laughs> but in another way it's changed is there's not a lot of altercations anymore like you used to see. Not that I like and condone fighting or anything, but you just don't see that hard body contact anymore because, you know, guys want to play a lot of years and they don't want that extra stress and they don't want that, you know, that that macro trauma, that big injury that puts them out for the rest of their days. So you start seeing people kind of, not want to get those fouls and not want to take that hard contact so that they can then, you know, increase their time on the court. Do you think the the big man will make a comeback in the NBA? He's going to have to be a different kind of big man. You know, gone are the days of the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, the Mark Eaton's, the, the guys like that. I mean, the big slow. Of course, you know, Kareem wasn't that slow, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of the offense went through him, though. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see that anymore. I mean, you, now you got people like Dirk Nowitzki, who you know he don't play there anymore, but he changed the game. And Kukov, they changed the game. And these are big guys who can play out. And nothing wrong with that. Who can play on the perimeter? I mean, Oscar Schmidt did that. They can play on the perimeter and shoot the ball, but you know when it comes time for contact, you they wouldn't be in the five spot. So right. the game has evolved the game has evolved evolved a lot. But it's changed from the eighties to now tremendously. Absolutely. And and definitely with the, the three point shot. I mean what once Steph started shooting behind it seemed like everyone was shooting three point shots, including a lot of the centers nowadays. Um yeah. it's just there's like, a lot of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people don't need to be shooting three-point shots. Yeah, yeah. It's almost <laughs> like if you want to make it to the NBA, you gotta have a jump shot now behind the three point line. Even yeah, the, even the centers included. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to have a hook shot now. You don't have to have a drop step anymore. So yeah, that's gone some... are the days of, of Daryl Dawkins and guys like that and Kevin McHale. I mean, you know, 
would Larry Bird fit into this game? Man, you got to be. And of course, Larry would get up and down the floor, but man, I think it's changed even more than that. Mm-hmm. So the floor has got shorter because you know you cross that you cross that half court line, the ball's going up. Right. Uh, right. It, it's even got shorter. That's just uh, the that's tough. just the norm nowadays. Yeah, it'd be tough. Mm-hmm. It really would. Well, uh, Greg, we are all out of time, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Greg Sperling, and this was Face to Face Sports here on WEHC. I want to thank you all for tuning in once again. Special thanks to KLSU on LSU's campus for providing the necessary equipment. Tune in next week, same day, same time, Monday at 630 in the evening. Bye now.